Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 42nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is imagination with a straitjacket. I'm joined by Alan Lightman, the author of Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings. The publisher is Pantheon Books. Alan is a writer, physicist, and social entrepreneur. He has served on the faculties of Harvard and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT, and was the first person at MIT to receive dual faculty appointments in science and in the humanities. He is the author of numerous books, both fiction and nonfiction. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you, Dan. Absolutely. Looking forward to this. So to begin, what's a, a brief summary of the book? How could you kind of give us an overview sense of it? The book is a collection of connected essays that look at beginnings, the, the birth of the universe, uh, even before that, nothingness, and the endings of the universe or uh, the infinite extent of the universe. Uh, so it's it's about uh, infinities of the small and infinities of the large, you might say, and, and how do we locate ourselves in between. Sure, and you have a little bit about uh, your childhood in Memphis in here as well. Um, there's an essay, The Ghost House of My Childhood. So there's a autobiographical vein as well as the more scientific aspect. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's some human stories in the book, uh, because if, if we try to place ourselves in somewhere in the cosmos, we also have to place ourselves as human beings and as people with, with families and loves and passions and, and memories and so on. Yeah, no, I very much like that kind of more holistic sense of it, uh, mind and heart, you know, in the simplest way of putting it, I suppose. Um, what inspired you to write this book? I mean, you've written many, and each new book is a, is a new project, a new endeavor. Why this book now? What what brought you to it? Well, over the last few years, I've been contemplating the infinities of the large and the infinities of the small and uh, increasingly in awe at the fact that we can trace ourselves backwards in time to some ancestral woman sitting by a fire in a cave uh, who is the mother of all the mothers that led to us and just the the fact that that's so hard to conceive of, and yet it's it's definitely true. That is, if you went back to your mother and and 
the, the mother of your mother and the mother of that mother, and you went back in time just tracing mothers, you would get back to some woman 100,000 years ago in a cave who can trace her lineage to you. And there's so many uh, seemingly impossible things like that that, that that happen in the world when, when we look both at times much earlier and at times much later than we are, or look at, at scales that are much smaller than we are, or scales much larger. Things that we that we believe to be true, but yet we can't wrap our heads around. Yeah, well, one of the things I thought was really amazing was the coincidence that the number of neurons in our brain is quite possibly about equal to the number of stars in the sky, uh, 100 billion stars, if I'm quoting you correctly from the book. That's right. I, I have no explanation for that coincidence. <laughs> but it's interesting, that connection between the, ourselves and and the, the 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 galaxy. Sure. Well, when you were talking about ancestors and going back, I had the occasion to be in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia just a few years ago. And there in the museum is Lucy's Bones, uh, which was yeah. quite an amazing sight to see. But also amazing to me was the total lack of security in the building. Yeah. Uh, a janitor let me in at eight o'clock and there was no other visitors and no staff around and no one asked me for any money. And I didn't see any security cameras or anything else. Uh, to speak of. So did, you walk, so, did you walk off with any Lucy Bones in your pocket? No, no. I, I was a very honorable Boy Scout, former Boy Scout. I, I did not take any part of Lucy with me. Okay. So she, she's all there. If someone else did it, that's shame on them, but uh, not me. And, and, and how, remind me, how old is Lucy? Um, I do not have an answer to that question. Very ancient is my, is my uh, duck out question, answer to that. Okay. But um, yeah, but it uh, was quite yeah, you know, it was quite an amazing museum. It just was so so low key in its approach. So your on your dissertation committee was a man named Richard Feynman at Caltech. Yeah, and I was interested in part because when you were describing him and and his personality and so forth, you mentioned they had zero interest in philosophical or theological questions. Yet in your book, you you quote Saint Augustine, you bring in Buddha. It seems to me that whatever you gained from Richard, you, on the other hand, didn't uh, uh, buy into this idea that one couldn't and wouldn't raise the philosophical or the theological. Yeah. Well, you know, you can admire people for some things, but not sure. admire everything. And he was probably one of the greatest physicists, certainly one of the greatest of the 20th century. Um, but I have found that philosophical and theological questions are, are extremely interesting to me. And in fact, I think that the subject of theoretical physics, which was Feynman's subject, as, as, as it was mine, uh, takes us to the edge of philosophical and theological questions. Yeah. And, and in fact, when I was reading your book, and it starts out quite early on talking about Pascal, the 17th century humanist and scientist. And, you know, given your dual appointments uh, in the humanities and science, uh, to what extent it, might it be fair to suggest that you are kind of going in that tradition of Pascal and that much more broad-gauged approach that everything kind of interests you, in fact? Well, I think I'm, I'm going in that direction. I certainly wouldn't compare myself to Pascal uh, either in science and the humanities, but um, I do uh, really appreciate uh, 
people who are able to, to bridge the, the various di disciplines. We've gotten so specialized in the world uh, that often people in one field can't talk to people in another, even within different fields of science. And I think that's a great loss. In uh, earlier times, it was not that way. Of course, specialization has allowed a, a lot of great developments uh, uh, in science and other fields, but it does have this downside that we are getting into silos where we can't communicate with each other. Yeah, no, and I, I very much appreciate that both in the preliminary call we had and, and now my, my sense of you as someone who, you know, likes to have that conversation and bring people in without limiting artificially where one can get to, which in fact brings me to the title we chose for the episode, Imagination with a Straitjacket. Could you maybe explain that just a little bit for, for listeners? Well, that was a phrase that, uh, that Richard Feynman used. We were speaking of him earlier. Um, in a little book that he wrote called The Character of Physical Law, in which he tries to convey to the layperson how it is that the laws of nature are discovered by scientists. And he makes the point that, that even though imagination is very important in science, that you have to conform to a great body of previously established knowledge. Uh, for example, you can't invent a new theory of gravity where apples fall up from trees instead of down from trees. Um, sure. We know that gravity is a downward force down towards the center of the earth. And so um, that's why he calls it imagination with a straitjacket, that the straitjacket is the large body of previously established facts about the world, how the world behaves, and uh, you you try to to invent new facts, uh, to invent new theories, to to come to new comprehensions, but at the same time, you, you any new theory has to to be consistent with what has already been established by experiment. So that's imagination with a terrible straitjacket. Sure. So one of the most uh, surprising, amazing things you, you talk about in this book is uh, that the universe is expanding. And you say this is, in fact, the most important cosmic discovery of, I think you said, of all time, not just of our era. Why is that so? What are the implications? Why, why is that so significant, just to help out listeners? Well, prior to around 1929 or so, we thought that the universe was static. Uh, that the heavens really did not move, that the the the, the universe had, had lasted forever and more or less was static. Um, and in 1929, we discovered evidence that the universe is in fact expanding. It's not static. It's it's in motion and not only in motion, but it's expanding like dots pointed on the surface of a balloon that's being blown up. And each of those dots is like a galaxy. Um, all the, the dots are moving away from each other. All the galaxies are moving away from each other. Well, if you play that picture backwards in time and you let the air out of the balloon, all the galaxies get closer and closer and closer together. And you can calculate a, a particular moment in the past when all of the mass of the universe was scrunched into a tiny region smaller than an atom, that's about 14 billion years ago. 
And the reason why that's so significant is because it means the universe had a beginning. Um, the universe as we know it had a beginning. It's not infinite in time. And of course, if it had a beginning, that raises all kinds of new questions like, how did it begin? You know, if you're a religious person, you can say, well, God created the universe and that's when it started 14 billion years ago with the creation of God. If, if you don't want to take that avenue as explanation, you, you have to look into uh, the area of quantum physics and ask how could something have come from nothing? Um, how could this time and space and matter that we see around us, how could that have emerged from uh, nothing? And was there anything before that nothing? Was there, was there a nothing even less than nothing? So those are the kinds of, of questions that, that arise from the knowledge that our universe began at a particular moment in the past, as opposed to having lasted forever. If the universe has lasted forever, you don't need a creator and you don't need a creation event. Um, that's the situation in Buddhism, for example, uh, which believes that the universe has, has lasted forever. It's gone through an infinite number of cycles. Yep. And on the backside, what are the implications? Because if there's a beginning, as you just suggested a moment ago, there's there's an end out there, quite possibly. Well, yes. Uh, well, the end could be that the universe is just, and this is the end that we actually we think actually applies to our universe. That the universe keeps expanding forever. That eventually all the stars burn out. Uh, it gets colder and colder and, and thinner and thinner. And uh, the question is whether there can be any life into the infinite future, if that's the ultimate fate of the universe, just to keep expanding forever. That, that's the, the, what we think uh, is the case now for, for our universe. Yeah, well, that, that would be striking. You say in the book, the sun will burn out. It's Granted, it's a long time, 10 billion years from now, but just to try to wrap our, our brains around the notion that the sun could be yeah. you know, ineffectual in the future is yeah. obviously... <laughs> Cataclysmically, you know, striking for us. Oh, we, we know for sure that our sun will burn out. Um, it has a limited n amount of nuclear fuel, like like any any object with a finite amount of energy. And eventually, all of the nuclear reactions that can occur will have occurred, and the, the, our sun will it will first grow very large. Uh, the outer layers will expand and engulf the Earth, and then it will begin cooling. And, and getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. I can't think of any more better occasion to say, wow, because that is, that is yeah. well, we, hard almost to take in. Well, we, we don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, True. Yeah. You and I, yes. But I, I think for listeners, you can begin to see why this book is called Probable Impossibilities, uh, just given the, the scope of uh, the reach of science and the imagination and the theological and other issues and questions that come with it. Uh, one of the things I, I also enjoyed about the book is that you you really got yourself out there and you, you created conversations uh, with scientists in person. So it's not just yeah. going back to Feynman and so forth. There was a number of people that you referenced in the book. And I asked you in our previous call, there was maybe two or three we particularly wanted to talk about. 
So I'd, I'd like to bring those into the conversation mm -hmm. briefly and, and why you chose them and what struck you about them. And then I'm going to add in that I actually went online and looked up photographs of each of these three people because I'm a facial coder, which means that I use Dr. Paul Ekman's system of looking at facial muscle activity, looking for signature expressions or kind of repeat patterns, as it were. So I mm -hmm. will tell you what I saw in each case, and it may or may not click with uh, your sense of the person, but I, I'll throw that in for what it's worth. So let's start with Jack Sosak. Sostak. Yeah, Jack Sostak. Well, he is a, uh, a biologist who works at Harvard, um, and uh, he won the Nobel Prize for uh, his study of, of the ends of genes called telomeres, um, which have something to do with the length of, of lifespan. But what he's doing now, uh, which is more interesting to me, is that he is trying to create life from scratch. He's trying to, starting with the, the inorganic chemicals that were available in the primitive earth, to see if he can form cells that 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 have uh, a cell wall that separates them from the outside world that can utilize sources of energy and that can compete in, in Darwinian type evolution and improve themselves. Um, so he's trying to create a, a very simple organism that would be considered alive uh, from scratch. And I think that that has profound implications. Uh, <clears throat> is life sacred and can only be created by God or can we create life in the laboratory? He's a very modest man uh, and uh, he has a laboratory of, I think, 25 or 30 graduate students and postdocs. And uh, I enjoyed meeting him very much. Well, it's interesting because I do remember you mentioning in the book that he was modest or understated also. Uh, when I looked at his facial expressions, what really stood out for me was he concentrates. His his eyebrows lower, they scrunch together, the eyes tighten. And this these are a kind of signs sometimes of anger, but anger in the sense of wanting to make progress and concentrate and have a path forward. So the, the task he's after is quite monumental. And yeah. maybe that helps explain those expressions. Mm -hmm. uh, another person was Andre Lindy, uh, quite a different personality. Uh, you say that uh, he does not have a small opinion of himself. Uh, he's at Stanford. What 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 uh, drew you to making him one of your selections here? Well, uh, Andre Lindy, who uh, 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 came from Moscow to the United States, um, I think roughly around 1990 or so, um, he uh, is a theoretical physicist who is the architect of uh, the leading theory of cosmology right now, one of the leading theories um, in which uh, there are many, many universes and each universe is able to, to spawn uh, other universes. It's, it's a process called chaotic internal inflation. He, he has the equations and the physics behind it. But many of these universes are infinite in extent. So Lindy imagines a whole constellation of universes that are constantly branching off from previous universes. It's sort of the largest conception of reality 
or the largest conception of infinity of, of anybody that I know. Uh, he's uh, about 72 years old now, and uh, uh, I had a very good conversation with him. He's also a photographer and has taken some beautiful photographs that are very artistic. So he has an artistic side as, as well as a scientific side. He also has very large smiles. He, he's quite different from Jack by personality. I was struck by how many mm -hmm. uh, twinkling eye expressions and uh, uh, eyes wide open, which fits curiosity, which I'll come back to in a moment. Mm -hmm. the, the third person was Sarah Seeger. She's a, in right. astronomy at MIT. Uh, why is she in the mix here? Or does she bring uh, well, Sarah Seeger is one of the leaders in the search for other planets beyond our solar system. And uh, she has developed uh, techniques for uh, studying the atmospheres of planets um, as uh, if a planet is orbiting another star and just as it goes around the other star and, and um, reemerges from the, for the other side of, the, of that star, the, the starlight uh, the, the light that you've been detecting from the star passes through the atmosphere of the planet and is altered by that atmosphere. And by looking at just how the starlight is, is altered by the atmosphere of the planet, um, you can tell what the chemical composition of the planet is. And so she developed uh, that technique. Um, she's particularly interested in looking for planets that might have life on them. So she's looking for, and other people as well as her, whether there are chemicals in the atmospheres of other planets that indicate life exists on those planets. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be advanced life. It could be very primitive life. But uh, for example, uh, oxygen, if you find oxygen in the atmosphere of, of another planet, that's an indication that there's an ongoing process of life, because if there was no life, any oxygen would immediately combine with other chemical elements, and it would not be isolated by itself. So you need uh, life living organisms that are constantly uh, producing oxygen, uh, as plants do, um, to to see uh, oxygen in the atmospheres of, of other planets. So that's an example of, of what she does. Kind of work she's doing. Okay. Uh, I was struck in her case. I mean, like Lindy, uh, she has very much eyes wide open, uh, paying attention sort of expressions, but she's also a, a little bit of a, of a smirker. She seems to uh, be a, a doubter or question things potentially. That, yeah. Have any fit for what you know of her? Uh, I don't think that she's a smirker. Um, she she does say in her recent memoir that she's autistic. Ah. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, in, in your uh, analysis of people by photographs, it would depend on which particular photograph you're looking at because Jack Shostak is, is capable of smiles as well. Um, and he, he certainly smiled during the time that I was talking to him. So um, I think... You know, you have to look at a lot of photographs of a person, in, in my view, in order to uh, infer something about their personality.
Oh, oh no, I, w- I would certainly agree. I would say that I looked at about 35 to 40 photographs overall, and certainly there were some uh, instances where Jack was smiling more broadly, but most of the smiles were yeah. were, were there, but more modest. Uh, Andre had all sorts of photographs with very large smiles, yeah. and you know, it's hard to know why one shows what in, in Dr. Ekman's system is a contempt expression, but it does involve the corner of the mouth pulling up and out, and uh, that's not evident in all of Sarah's photos, but it's, mm. it's, it's, it's evident in quite a few, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not by any means to suggest it's a negative uh, characteristic. One can just be uh, someone who likes to scrutinize and, you know, will accept what they believe once they can <laughs> muster the evidence to, to go there. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that all three of these people, Jack Shostak, Andre Lindy, and Sarah Seeger are all passionate about their work and they're they're all intense. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't have hobbies and do things for fun and have sure. and so on, but they, they all bear down pretty hard on their profession and, and they love their profession. Yeah, no, I would certainly say the intensity came through. I was intrigued with the, and I was looking for it, admittedly, wondering whether or not I would see uh, surprise expressions, including the eyes wide open. Because as I read your book, and I, you know, this is about emotions, at least in part, and that's an interest of mine. Uh, I said to myself, this is really a book in many ways that's about uh, vigilance and anticipation and explore exploration, and then looking for the surprises that can come out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's the scale of the book. That's the scale of the the enterprises that they're involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also thought of that because you you quote at one point Einstein, who says the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. Yeah. Um, why did you include that quote? How does that intrigue you? Well, I love the mysterious and 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 the surprise um, that's in in science and and in life. But um, some people think that that the enterprise of science is just uncovering one fact after another after another in in a straight line of progress. But scientists are frequently stumped. And frequently there are uh, experiments or observations or phenomena that we don't completely understand. And that's when the most progress is made. That's when we're most creative. Um, Standing on the edge of the the precipice between what's known and what's not known. And, And instead of being afraid and fearful, being exhilarated by standing on the edge. Uh, I, I hope that we never know everything in science. I hope that there are, are always things we don't know, that there are always mysteries for us, because I think that that's what provokes creativity. And I think it, it probably happens in the arts as well. Uh, I know that as, as a writer, uh, when I'm writing fiction, that I am most intrigued by characters that I don't completely understand. Uh, There's some writer, I can't remember who it was, who said that, that, that once you understand a character fully in a novel, that character is dead for you. Yeah, no, there's a wonderful quote from Robert Frost that said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, I've written poetry and essays and books and any book that I ever wrote where I came out on the backside and knew what I knew came in, what came in was a unsuccessful piece of writing yeah. because it just didn't have that spirit to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, you you at one point say you have your own philosophy and you offer it up in the book because this is a book that, and I think this is what's in part delightful about it, is it's got this immense scale and it's also a very intimate book at the same time, in part drawing on your childhood in Memphis. But you say that you have a philosophy in life, which is to avoid leading a dull life, avoid personal anarchy, and avoid hurting others. So there's three avoids in there. And certainly, I'd be happy if you wanted to comment on that philosophy, but there's also the things that you are seeking in addition to what you're avoiding. Well, I'm a little bit embarrassed that you pointed out that there are three avoids in that philosophy. <laughs> I, I would think that there's something positive that I'm seeking. Well, I'm sure there is. Well, I think that I'm seeking to make the world a better place, uh, to, to lead a meaningful life. Yes. And I think that I don't think there's any cosmic signature that tells us what has meaning on a cosmic scale. I think that each of us has to find our own meaning. And uh, whatever that is, I think understanding what has meaning for you and leading a meaningful life is is really very important for me. And I also want hope that I'll leave the world in slightly better shape than I left, than, than I came in with. Oh, no, I, I think that comes through in the book, uh, that you are an exploratory person, but it's, it's not in a detached sense that there's a, there's a personal commitment here. There's a real sense of caring. And in fact, I wanted to bring in one other element before we're done. Uh, your wife is a painter. Yes. So you have all these influences from you know, your dissertation committee guy, Fenneman, but undoubtedly your wife is an influence as well. So as a painter, she is exploring. She is using imagination and curiosity. What would you say that you, you've learned from your wife that maybe has informed and improved on how you, you, you write and how you explore as a scientist? Well, I've, I mean, it's sort of the superficial level. Whenever I go into a museum with my wife, I see paintings uh, in a much deeper level because she explains the, the, the reason why a painter put a little bit of dab of red in that corner and so on. Um, I, I understand paintings more. Uh, but my wife is getting very personal. My, my wife is very good at living in the moment. And as I've gotten older, especially with with the frantic pace of life today, um, that I I think being able to slow down and live in the moment is extremely important. And I've learned that from my wife because she's very good at that. Well, that's a good thing to have picked up. Um, My wife is better at that than I am myself. Um, you do mention that, that she, you know, she, there's a comment, perfect order in art is uninteresting. And I thought there was a parallel there in your hope that there will always be things to explore mm-hmm. in life and you don't want it all ordered and complete and, mm-hmm. and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, a good parallel. Okay. Well, we are just about done. Is there one last thing you wanted to, to mention about the book that I may have, have missed? Some interesting detail, uh, a person you want to cite, anything of that order? I- I think we covered a lot, and and you you probed a lot of the of, of, of interesting aspects. Uh, so uh, I don't really need to add anything. 
Okay, fair enough. So just to, to wrap up here, uh, my guest here has been uh, Alan Lightman. He is the author of Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings. This is episode number 42 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, by all means, give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can p- check out previous episodes on my company's website at the obligatory three W's dot sensory logic.com or no, go to the new books network website. Uh, this podcast is listed under its special series options. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, in light of today's topic and the fact that you quoted Albert Einstein uh, more than once in this book, uh, I'm going to go to a quote from Albert himself who said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.